With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Growing up in the 1930s in Memphis, Tennessee, Phil Larimore was the ultimate Boy Scout. He could read maps, put a compass to good use, and traverse wild swamps and desolate canyons. He was also very good at riding horses. But Phil did poorly in school, leading his parents to send him to a military academy. After Pearl Harbor, he realized he was destined for war. Three weeks before his 18th birthday, he became the youngest candidate to ever graduate from officer candidate school at Fort Benning, Georgia. He landed on the Anzio beachfront in February 1944, and Phil was put in charge of an ammunition pioneer platoon in the 3rd Infantry Division. Their job was to deliver ammunition to the frontline foxholes. And here, this was a portion of World War II that really looked like World War I. There were trenches everywhere, men were bunkered down for weeks, and his assignment was incredibly dangerous, involving regular forays into no man's land. Today I'm speaking to Walt Larimore, author of the new book At First Light, a true World War II story of a hero, his bravery, and an amazing horse. Walt is the son of Phil and he grew up knowing his father fought in World War II. After all, his father had a missing leg from the war, but his father never discussed it until late in life. As Phil fought his way up the Italian boot into southern France and across the Rhine River to Germany, he was caught up in some of the most intense combat ever as one of the youngest officers in the U.S. Army. Toward the end of the war, this is where things really get interesting, after 15 months of frontline fighting, he was sent on a top-secret mission to find the world-famous Lipizzaner horses that Hitler had hidden away. Hitler wanted to, I'm not kidding, breed a master race of horses fit for the master Aryan race. At the end of the war, he loses his leg, but Phil isn't done. He fights for the rights of amputees in the army and has some successes, some failures, but ultimately makes a pathway for those who are permanently injured in the war to find new roles in civilian life. This is a World War II story that has all sorts of dimensions to it, so I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Walt Larimore. We're going to be talking about your father's experiences in World War II, and when it comes to World War II, typically from the perspectives of most readers or from my perspective, from most listeners' perspective, our entry point will come from historical or academic study. And we'll start out in large-scale terms. We'll begin with whether it was in the European or Pacific theater. Then we zoom into a specific campaign or front of the battle, the African campaign, the Italian campaign, 
perhaps the D-Day landings in Normandy. Then we might zoom in on a particular battle and look at things on the battalion or platoon level. But your story is a personal one, and your entry point wasn't historical study. It was growing up with your father who fought in Italy and elsewhere and hearing family stories. Was there a particular story or anecdote or recollection of the war that stuck out to you in particular as a child growing up hearing his stories? You know, my brothers and I, there were, there were four of us growing up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we knew our dad had fought in the war because he had a wooden leg. He had an artificial leg. He wouldn't talk about it. And we'd ask mom and she'd say, well, he just doesn't like to talk about that anymore. I heard other boys brag about their dad's heroism and, and fighting in the war. And I had no idea if my dad was a hero or a coward or, or what. I just didn't know. I knew he'd lost his leg. But I suspected that there was a great number of stories there, Scott, because in his small office at home were a number of photographs of famous generals that were signed to him, called him a fighting man, the greatest soldier I ever knew. And alongside that were was a shadow box full of medals, you know, silver stars and bronze stars and purple hearts and distinguished service cross. So I, I suspected he was a hero, but he, he just wouldn't talk until he and mom reached their 50th wedding anniversary. It was in 1998. And my brothers and I were gathered celebrating with mom and dad. And I was, I'd been asked at, at a church that Barb and I attended to preach that year a sermon on why freedom isn't free. July 4th that year was on a Sunday. And so my brothers and I were sitting with Dad, and I just asked ask him, uh, Dad, how'd you lose your leg? What happened? And I, I, the timing was just right, Scott. He was feeling nostalgic about marriage, about his career as a, a beloved professor at LSU, a scoutmaster, and he had started contacting some of his buddies from the war. And the, the dam gates literally burst, and he described he started off with the first battle, the one for which he was given the Distinguished Service Cross, and the one in which he lost his leg, and the one in which I, I start the book with. Well, I'd like to hear about his childhood growing up. You did a lot of research for this book. You went to Kansas City, as you mentioned, the World War I Museum. So you're really looking at the wider context of the war. But tell me about his childhood in the 1930s, what he did as an explorer, and other things that you think prepared him for what he would encounter in the war? Uh, he was a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> he just, he, he, uh, from all the records I can gather, his mother saved just hundreds of pages of records. He, he wrote over 450 letters home to friends and to his mother, and that allowed me to put together a story that, that uh, he had never really told of a, of a young man who just didn't do well in school topics. He wasn't well-mannered. His mom sent him to a manners school and an art school and, and regular school, and he just didn't do well. But when he would visit relatives in northern Arkansas, that's where the real Bill Larimore came out. He was an, a master equestrian from an early age. Uh, he was an expert with compass and hunting. Uh, one of the records says that he could shoot kernels of corn off a fence post at 50 yards from any position, prone, supine, or standing. And it was, it was in the wilds, and it was with the horses that he really developed as a, a marvelous human being. But it didn't, it didn't portend well for, for academics at, at school. A, uh, 
couple of really significant events. One was he uh, and a friend decided to to swim the Mississippi River. He grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and at that point, the Mississippi River was about three quarters of a mile across. And they just happened to do it during the flood of 1937. He was 12 years old and uh, nearly killed he and one of his best friends, but they made it across the river and then they made it uh, back. But during that return back, his friend that was swimming with him began to drown, actually began to go under. He fatigued because the water flow was so great. And using his lifeguard skills, he was able to rescue his friend, a skill that, that manifested itself along with his, his horse skills and his uh, compass and wildlife skills, wilderness skills that manifested throughout the, the war. Another event was when the Lipizzans, the world-famous Lipizzans, came to Memphis. And Dad went and spent a, a day and a half, actually, with the, with the Lipizzans, uh, working in the stables and, and shoveling manure and, and then eventually being able to brush the horses and finally actually being allowed to sit on, on one of them. It was on one of his birthday celebrations. And, and that became almost prophetic for the, the story that we learned later, that dad was the person who was sent on a secret mission towards the end of the war. In fact, just days before he lost his leg, right? One month before the end of the war, was sent into Czechoslovakia to find out if the rumors were true. Had Hitler indeed sequestered almost the entire world population of Lipizzans on a horse farm in Czechoslovakia? And so his secret mission was to fly in, be flown in on a a little Piper Cub, and find those horses, which he did, and led to him actually not only finding the Lipizzans, but helping save additional breeds, including a thoroughbred that eventually ended up being a horse that saved his life. Well, we'll definitely come back to that. One thing, though, in this show, I always try to bring in a question or two that relates the topic at hand, whatever the topic might be, into the universal human experience that can tell us about things, not just the time in question, but really across all of history. That usually comes later in the discussion, but you said something that stuck out to me about his experience that made him a good soldier. And it reminded me a lot of Audie Murphy. Uh, I did a long series on him about him on the show. And similar childhood, grew up in the Depression. He was a poor Texas boy who was a fantastic marksman. But other than that, I mean, he was kind of an unassuming little kid, got into a lot of fights, punched above his weight. So I wonder if there's a nature or nurture element that you think makes someone an excellent soldier. And your father has something similar too, where on the one hand, you know, really ornery, really scrappy, like an Audie Murphy. Is that something that makes someone good in those situations and combat? Or is it, they really have an open free range childhood where they explore a lot. They're thrown into a lot of different situations in nature. They develop the let's say, muscle memory or psychological memory to not lose their minds when they're thrown into the unexpected, which works very well for combat situations. I don't know. Is there anything that hearing his stories and thinking as a also a medical professional of maybe nature or nurture elements that would allow someone to become a good soldier? Yeah, great question, Scott. And I think it's probably a combination of both. As I researched Dad's story, I found that he sort of was naturally attracted to other, what he called farm boys. In fact, his best friend throughout the war, Ross Calvert, who's a major character in the book, was a farm boy in eastern Tennessee. And dad was kind of a farm boy, if you would. I grew up in the city, but, but uh, nurtured in the wilderness in western Tennessee. As, as a quick aside, Scott, 
There's a couple chapters in the book about Dad and Audie Murphy. They were both wounded at a similar time during the war and then recuperated for about a month together in France and became good friends. They were actually cotmates, if you would, on the officer's ward. Audie Murphy had been given a field promotion, and but Audie had a hip, hip one of his hip injuries, uh, wounds that had become gangrenous and needed surgery, and Dad had, had been shot through a, through a leg and had surgery. And so they recovered right next to each other. And the nurse that cared for them, they called Pricey, actually, Audie Murphy, Scott, if you know his story, proposed to Pricey. She turned him down and they did not get married, but it's an interesting sidelight on the story. What happened in Dad's case, though, was that his nature, which was so sort of anti-school, ended up leading to military school. His dad was a conductor, on the, a Pullman conductor on the Illinois Central Line that ran from Chicago to New Orleans. His mom was a legal clerk, and so he was a, a latchkey child that kept getting in trouble. So finally, his mom and dad sent him to Gulf Coast Military Academy in Gulfport, Mississippi, and that's where he found himself academically. He was taking regular you know, high school courses, if you would, but boy, it was those military courses, military strategy and weapons and learning to fly and learning military horsemanship, cavalry skills, sailing skills, compassing and wilderness skills, map reading skills that became the basis of him being the youngest graduate officer candidate school at Fort Benning right at the beginning of the war. And then one of the youngest and most highly decorated soldiers on the front line in no man's land, if you would, of World War II. But that nurture and that nature, that training, the deep faith that he had, a faith in his country, a faith in his fellow soldiers, and a blooming faith in God, all kind of combined to make the ingredients of a, of a forgotten hero. Can you describe his entry into the war when Pearl Harbor happens and his preparation to go to the European front? Yeah, he was uh, in his final year of military school. He had met a, a young lady from Des Moines, Iowa, named Marilyn Fountain, and they had become romantic, <laughs> were dating, and they were actually, uh, she was an equestrian also, and they were out riding horses together on the, the day of infamy. When they got back to the stables about noon, the, all the uh, other students that were at the stable and the stable hands were around the radios listening, and they actually listened for some time to the live broadcast coming out of Pearl Harbor. And it was that moment that Dad knew he was destined to war. He knew he was prepared for war. He was, knew he was destined for war. And although he wasn't a college graduate, he was just a high school graduate at that time, because of his record in ROTC, because of his record at military school, he was one of the few non college graduates that was allowed to and chosen to go through OCS. It was at OCS that he learned from the evaluations of his classmates, of his leadership schools, even though he was by far the youngest person in OCS, they recognized his leadership. That's where he met Russ Calvert, actually. Russ Calvert was one of his instructors. Russ Calvert was one of these farm boys that was a natural leader that after finishing OCS had been asked to stay at OCS. And as his instructor, even though instructors and candidates were not supposed to socialize, they did. They rode horses together. They played bridge together, even became so good at bridge that after the war, Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, recruited them to come play bridge with him when they were serving up in Arlington and, and Fort Myer. 
But Pearl Harbor became the beginning after Pearl Harbor and after graduation from military school. He spent about a year training. He trained in paratroopers. As a paratrooper, he trained as a glider pilot because he was training with glider troops in Alliance Air Base in northwestern Nebraska. And the company commanders had to be able to take over the glider if the pilot was was injured. In fact, one of the most harrowing stories, I think, in the whole book was when they were on a test ride in a glider and a large bird broke through the window of the glider being pulled behind a a towing aircraft. And it, it completely incapacitated the pilot. Dad had to pull the tow line off and then land this injured glider, almost crash landing. It was a really scary event in his life. But he also trained in winter cooking, winter survival. He trained in demolitions, both placing demolitions and defusing demolitions. And because of that training at the last minute, just before the glider troops and just before the 82nd Airborne deployed, he was transferred out and sent up to uh, Fort Meade and then sent overseas to join the Southern Front on Anzio. They had just invaded the Anzio beachhead in January of 1944. And that was his introduction to the war as part of the 3rd Infantry Division and the 30th Infantry Regiment as a platoon commander for an A&P platoon, ammunition and pioneer platoon. So these were the guys that worked at night, all night long, on the front line, placing wire, barbed wire, concertina wire, helping to place footbridges for advancing soldiers, helping to bring ammunition to the front line foxholes, and defusing bombs as well as placing mines. Extremely dangerous work that actually almost got him killed just within his first few weeks of the war. I want to get into that. First of all, the Anzio Beach landing, something we were discussing off air before this, is that other amphibious landings in Europe, I mean, they're really, they live under the shadow of the Normandy landings. People, if they have any passing interest in World War II, can practically name the five beaches of the Normandy D-Day landings, but Anzio is less well-known. So, in general, can you describe the time this happens in the war, the broader objectives of it, and what it was like for soldiers to land at Anzio? Yeah, well, I've, I've interviewed, I don't know how many people is in my research, and I would always ask people uh, what D-Day meant to them, and, and 100% of people say Normandy. But I've not found anybody that realizes as, as important and as titanic as the Normandy invasion was it was one D-Day that the Northern guys went through. The Southern guys went through five D-Days. The initial D-Day and in the invasion of North Africa in Morocco, at Padala, and then they had their second D-Day at Sicily, where the entire army had a, had a D-Day. The third D-Day in Salerno, Italy. Fourth one, of course, was Anzio, and we'll come back to that. And then the fifth one was Southern France in August of 1944. So they had five army-wide amphibious D-Days. And that doesn't even account the two, there were two flanking D-Days on Sicily, where the 3rd Battalion of the uh, 30th Infantry did flanking D-Days. So in one way, you could even say they had seven D-Days. There was uh, great consternation by some of the Allied leaders, particularly Winston Churchill, about the Southern Front. He was concerned that more of the resources should go to the Northern Front. Eisenhower overruled him. And so while the 
guys that had invaded at Salerno, Italy, were working north, becoming bogged down at Casino. There was a decision made to go to the north, to Anzio, about 20, 25 miles from Rome, to develop another front so that the two, both the Casino front and the Anzio front, could break through and liberate Rome. That was the goal. And then work up through Italy into southern France and then become a pincher, if you would, where the northern guys would pinch from the north, southern guys would pinch from the south to meet together to conquer Germany. Anzio became a a hellhole. It was uh, a beachhead that was about 10 miles deep, about 15 miles wide, but was completely surrounded by mountains that were extremely well fortified by the Germans. Artillery covered the mountains, and the guns that they had, uh, some of our Listeners will remember Anzio, Annie, these railroad guns that were hidden in tunnels and then pulled out, could fire projectiles as big as refrigerators that could pinpoint targets as far as 30 miles away. And yet the shore where the boats came in was only 10 miles away from these guns. And so these guys became really sitting targets, if you would, sitting ducks. And so from January of 1944 until May, Anzio became a replica of World War I trench warfare, where the troops literally lived underground. They had to, to dig trenches and foxholes. Dad had to deliver. Dad and his men had to deliver ammunition every night under flares and bombardment and art, artillery and, and airplanes, Luftwaffe coming in. But eventually were able to fight their way out. They, the breakout occurred in May of 1944. Of course, the breakthrough at Casino occurred just before that, and the two two armies met just south of Rome, and then they became the first army to deliberate a capital in Europe. When I interview people, I say, what was the first capital interviewed? And they'll say, well, it's Paris (laughs) in in August of, of 44. But what people don't remember was, no, Rome was liberated on June 4th of 1944. But why don't we remember it? Well, the printers were preparing the headlines, right? Almost every paper in the country had huge uh, type headlines about the liberation of Rome. And those papers were going to run on June 6, 1944. And Scott, guess what happened on June 6? The the, uh, awaited invasion of northern France and Normandy and so once again, the guys on the Southern Front became the Forgotten Front, and they were pushed back to page 12 or page 14 of most papers in the United States. That'd be really disappointing. And I can also imagine a lot of frustrated newsmen just tearing up the copy and having to reprint the whole thing and run the plates again. Well, in fact, in fact Scott, I have just a, a real quick money trail there. Eric Severide, the, the very famous CBS journalist and broadcaster for many years, was actually embedded with the soldiers of the Southern Front. In his biography, he talks about the fact that they only had one hour a day where they could get their stories across the cable uh, on the Atlantic. The rest of the time, the cables were reserved for military and political purposes. So all of the men were, all of the newsmen were preparing their stories that were going to go through the cables of the entire, the fierce battles from Anzio to Rome, from Casino to Rome, and they knew that this was going to be frontline news, the liberation of Rome. And then just as they were getting ready to send their cables, they were going to go out at 3 a.m. that morning. One of the newsmen came into the room and said, boys, 
tear up your stories invasion has begun in northern France. And Eric Severide describes the story of all of them, you know, putting out their cigarettes and pulling their their stories out and just tossing them in the bin, knowing that that they weren't going to be frontline stories anymore. The point that you made earlier about Anzio Beach resembling World War One, that's an interesting point because for all the horrors of World War II, it was a war of movement, of mechanized warfare. You didn't have the World War One issue of 19th century tactics meeting 20th century weapons where men are pinned down or trying to do an assault after a military barrage. And with the importance of combined arms warfare, no one is really hunkering down anymore. But we do see cases like this, as you mentioned. So could you talk about Phil's experiences? You mentioned he almost died a number of times with the danger being a part of the ammunition pioneer platoon. What was it like for those weeks at Anzio Beach? Well, it was miserable and horrible. In fact, his first night in the field, one of his men was killed, placing a mine and and either made a mistake or it, or it malfunctioned. And it brought the horror of war to him immediately. He wasn't even a month in the war. Anzio had been swampland and Mussolini had drained the swamps and was building communistic communes of farms, communist farms. And so there were farmhouses throughout the fields that were all stone and were uh, had been, at least towards the mountains, heavily fortified. Many people don't know that Anzio actually may have been one of the first biologic warfare sites because prior to being the fields being drained, these were just mosquito-infested swamps, malaria-carrying mosquitoes. And so as the Anzio invasion began, the Germans destroyed dams and basically flooded the fields with the idea of being able to induce malaria. In fact, Dad's first hospitalization in early March of 1944 was because of malaria. And but thank goodness, because of the medication Adabrin, even though it caused some jaundice, turned some of the men's eyes yellows, it actually helped prevent the disaster of, of biologic warfare with malaria and Anzio. But one of the the there's a lot of horse stories in the book because Dad was an equestrian. And because of the guys having to go out at night, because of the risk of literally being within 20, 30, sometimes 40 yards of the German front line and having to work under complete dark, having Germans send the flares up, that they would have to, you know, literally find the, just pin themselves to the ground to not be seen and to not be shot. He and his men were in a farmhouse with an Italian family. And this Italian farmer, raised mules. And so the farmer had an idea that that he could rent the mules to the U.S. Army, that they could be useful in carrying ammunition out to the front lines. And Dad thought that was an interesting idea, even more provoked by the fact that the farmer said, mules are exceptionally smart. He said, much smarter than horses, much more sure-footed than horses, and that they have a sixth sense, if you would, of danger that they know where traps are set. He felt that they might even know where mines were set and were so smart that they could be easily trained so that when a flare went off, they would immediately fall to the ground and provide men protection. So dad thought that was interesting. He got permission from his commander to, to hire the mules, if you would. And one of his men had actually been, uh, had cared for mules on a farm in Missouri. And so they began the first experience of, of using mules to carry ammunition to the front line. And indeed, the mules could sense mines and avoid them. And when a flare went off, the mule would lay down 
and the man was with the mule could lay behind it for for protection. It was just astonishing. His earliest near-death experience was about a month into the war, and about a month into the war, and his regiment was capturing some of these farmhouses. The farmhouses were very heavily fortified, and so a paratrooper group had gone in and, and liberated, uh, conquered two of these houses, but then a, a, a poor decision was made to pull out the paratroopers and then send in dad's regiment to take over the houses. Well, while the exchange was taking place, that allowed the Germans to sort of creep back in, if you would, and a fierce battle erupted through the night. Dad and a few other men that he was with, including Ross Calvert, were able to fight off the Germans. It was hand-to-hand combat, potato masher, German grenades against U.S. grenades, U.S. carbines and M1 Garands against uh, much superior German machine guns. But at dawn, they had secured the two houses, but uh, the commander came up and said he wanted some mines set between the forces. This was dawn, and the Germans were now about 100 yards away, and Dad's men were going to go have to set up anti-tank mines on a bridge within fire of the Germans. And Dad refused to to let his men do it. He said, if someone's going to do this, as dangerous as it is, I'll do it. And as far as he was concerned, it was his death mission. Uh, He said a brief prayer. He settled things with the Lord in his own mind, and he went out in full view of the Germans and set uh, a a bunch of mines while machine gun fire, uh, at least according to the reports, was shredding the dirt around him. But he wasn't hit, and he was able to get back to the house, save that area of the front, be saved himself. And so his first medal uh, for valor was the Silver Star after only four weeks in the field. The first of two silver stars, followed by two bronze stars, followed by nominations for six Purple Hearts, but he only took three of them. He felt three of them weren't significant enough wounds to, to have the medal, and of course, the final Distinguished Service Cross later in the war. After Audie Murphy, he was one of the most decorated frontline soldiers in World War II. Scott here. We're going to have a very short word from our sponsors. First, I want to give a shout out to all the great shows on the Parthenon Podcast Network, including History of the Papacy. You can find this and many other great shows at ParthenonPodcast.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After Teddy Roosevelt's failed third-party presidential run, he thought that he would reassemble the Rough Riders for a final charge against the Germans in World War I by launching a cavalry attack against 50 caliber machine guns. Here's an interview with Bill Hazelgrove to look at this incredible story 
Teddy Roosevelt was one of these people who seemed indestructible. And that's why I think a lot of Americans wanted him to go, because in a way, he was their Superman. To listen to this full interview, check out the History Unplugged podcast on the podcast player of your choice. Can you describe how Anzio Beach is eventually liberated and what happens as he continues to fight his way up the Italian boot? Yeah, it wasn't terribly far. It was about 25 miles. But the Germans had had so much time to secure the mountains, the mountain passes, the small villages. But the Allies had, through nighttime, significantly fortified their forces, their ammo, their artillery. Because of the weather, they didn't have the air support that they wanted until the day of the breakout. And Dad's Letters Home describes it, the almost miracle of the storm clouds literally parting the morning of the, of the breakout, allowing air support to come in. That combination of air support, massive artillery support, and a huge number seven divisions of infantry um, and armor were able to, over a terrifically fierce three-day battle, finally break through and then begin moving towards Rome. The battles at each village along the way were terribly difficult. The losses were massive, but the bravery and the courage of the men as they fought literally hand-to-hand, gun-to-gun, working their way uh, towards Rome. I think the most impressive story was the Germans at one point, as Dad and his platoon were moving up, had captured an officer and an NCO, a sergeant, and had uh, tied them onto the front of a tank and were moving the tank up. To, to fire on Dad's platoon with the delusion that the men would not fire on the tank with two of their men on the tank. And in fact, they did fire. The officer was killed by friendly fire. The sergeant was able to get off the tank and escape, but the tank was destroyed. The infantry behind it were killed and the advance, the advance went forward. Descriptors of the frontline men of the carnage of war, uh, the blood, the smell. Dad talked about the smells being tattooed into his nostrils, of seeing the buddy in front of you literally cut in half by an 88-millimeter shell, to, to see a buddy have his head explode next to you, to see a buddy be shot through the chest five yards in front of you, and to not be able to stop to be trained to continue to go on and to let the medics come behind. The medics are a whole another wonderful story of the war. But so many of us have forgotten the terrific sacrifice and suffering that these men went through day after day after day. Dad fought, well, the, the Southern Front guys fought 513 straight days. Dad was over 400 of them. Psychiatrists now tell us that a frontline soldier can begin to lose his grasp of reality at 200 days. And these guys blew like that, blew through that like, like nothing. It's a, a gruesome depiction, but one I think we, we need to remember because the freedom and liberty we enjoy is because of the shoulders that we sit on, those guys that fought in the Southern Front, the Northern Front. Right, and not to take anything away from those who fought in the Northern Front, but Parts of the war, you were simply in combat situations for much longer. I did a very long series with a co-host on World War II in the Pacific Theater. It's years and years of 
combat. Now you might not be on a, you know, a land mass consistently. Um, you may go from island to island, you may go on ship, but that drags on you after a while. Speaking broadly, as a medical professional and hearing his stories, what impression did you get of him being in combat for such a long period of time when, as you just said, over about 200 days or so, that can really start to damage you and your sense of reality? Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. I came to the conclusion, and I've, I've now read historians that say the same thing, that the patriotism that blossomed after Pearl Harbor, we were an isolationist country uh, that had stayed out of the war, that all of a sudden moved into the war full, full blast. The patriotism at home, the victory gardens, the sacrifices, the rations, the rosy riveters, the industrialization that produced countless planes and boats and weapons and ammunition, the patriotism and fervor of young men and women, predominantly medical, who were ready to go overseas to hile out of Hitler, <laughs> as men would say. But th that fervor, that patriotism began to wane on the, on the battlefield as you saw your friends shredded, as you were wounded. And what they transitioned to was an incredible faith and love of each other. The fight became transitioned from one of patriotism and liberation, not conquest. These, these guys didn't go to, to conquer anything until they got into Germany. But they went to liberate folks. And I don't think they felt that more than when they would liberate an Italian village or they would liberate a, a small village in southern France. And the celebration would begin. The wine would come out. The champagne would come out. The flowers would come out. The kisses from the young ladies would come out. I mean, they really felt like liberators. But as the war, as the war drug on, day after day, night after night, they began to fight for each other. They fought for their buddies that they loved. They fought for those that were back home. They fought for the day that they would get home to their loved ones. Dad talked as a, as a company commander, he had to censor, re read the mail of his guys. And that allowed him to love them and to love their families even more, to do anything that he could to get himself and to get those guys back home, to read the letters that he wrote, the woman who would become his fiance, and the, the hope of getting back to her, the hope of getting back to, to mom and dad and to the farms of northern Arkansas to get back to his horses and to his riding, all became paramount for them. Every day could be their last day. They knew it, but they fought like crazy to get back home. Being on the front lines for that long, from Italy into southern France, across the Rhine River into Germany, it, it can seem like a blur, but what are some of the combat missions that really stuck out to you as you were looking at the story? Well, there were, there were literally countless. The difficult part was how to take 500,000 words of records and letters and individual battles and strategy and condense it into a single book. But it was a job you know, that, that had to be done. A number, though, that really stood out. You talked earlier about the difference in World War I and World War II, but one surprising non-difference that most people don't know is that the German infantry and German artillery was predominantly horse-drawn. It was not mechanized. So the Germans had tens of thousands of horses that were used to draw supply line wagons, artillery. And in fact, at, at one point in the war, up to 6,000 German horses were being killed a month 
But there was one particular battle in southern France after the 7th D-Day of Dad's battalion, the 5th D-Day of that of the southern army. They were fighting up through southern France, moving very, very quickly, in fact, almost beyond their supply lines. And there was a gap where there was just enough room for a small river, the Rhone River at that that place, a railway line and a a two-lane road. And the German army was running so quickly, they were retreating so quickly that they had to squeeze through this entire gap. And the U.S. leaders designed a pincher move to bring artillery and infantry on either side of that gap. And although many of the Germans escaped before the U.S. was in position, Thousands and thousands of vehicles and soldiers and horses were caught in the gap, and the bombardment of them was intense, and it was, it was horrific. The avenue, the, the Rue Nationale 7 became known as the Avenue of Stenches because it was summer, it was hot, the bodies that were burned were swelling, the horses that were burned or shot or swelling. It was just horrific. And uh, Dad's commander, who was also an equestrian, called him in and said, Phil, I want you to, to take some guys that know horses, and I want you to go, uh, now that we've secured this gap, I want you to go in and any of the horses that can't be saved, uh, put them down. But any that can be saved, I, I want to save them. And the story of that roundup was, is just a, a delightful one, uh, hor- horrific in the way of, of how they had to put animals down, but how dad knew how to do that and could train his men how to do that in a humane way. And then the roundup of the animals they saved is a terrific story. In the Vosges Mountains, where the winter was horrible, and the Vosges Mountains in Alsace, France, had never been conquered by a conquering army, and never in winter. And the stories there were horrible. The weather conditions were horrible. Because of the clouds, there was zero air support. The Germans had had time to dig in and could literally attack the Americans at any time, day and night, and from any direction. The losses were horrible. The, the roads were almost impassable. The mud and the ice was miserable. And Dad brought back mules. He, General Truscott actually called Dad in and asked him about bringing the mules back. And they did. And it became part of the life-saving uh, supplies. But in that mission of bringing ammunition, Dad got caught on a, on a ridge with a group of rangers and for two days had a hand-to-hand combat that almost completely wiped out you know, an entire platoon. Horrific battles, but one that, that they won. That was the one that he, in which he was wounded and had to be evacuated and recovered with, with Audie Murphy. I think the, the most surprising battle to me, one that I had never heard of, Scott, was the battle for the Colmar Pocket. It was the final real estate in France that was still owned by the Germans. The Germans did not want to lose that land, and it was a, a battle to the death. It, it occurred in January and February 1945. It was the coldest winter it recorded in Europe. The ground was frozen solid and it was completely flat. There was no way to dig a foxhole. There was no way to hide. I I memorized a quote, in fact, about the Colmar Pocket. Stephen Ambrose, famous uh, historian, author of Citizen Soldiers and Band of Brothers, I have this quote, if I can share it with you. He says, all but forgotten today, the Battle of the Colmar Pocket that raged through January was for the GIs the worst of the war, if possible, even more miserable than Hurkin or Metz. It was fought in conditions so terrible that they can only be marveled at, not even imagined. 
only those who were there can know. More than once in interviewing veterans of the January fighting, when I asked them to describe the cold, men have involuntarily shivered. And so how do you write about that horror? A battle that I don't think Ambrose ever covered, but I've discovered documentation for and was provided unpublished documentation was called the Battle of Maison Rouge, and the, the what, Germans had destroyed most of the bridges heading towards Colmar, but there was one that still existed, but there was one that still remained. It was at a little farm called the Maison Rouge, the, the Red House Farm, and when Dad and his frontline guys arrived at that bridge, including Ross Calvert, they found out that it uh, was partially destroyed. And it was actually partially destroyed by our Air Force. But they had to, to call in the engineers to bring in material to replace the bridge. But because so many bridges had been destroyed, most of the engineering supplies were already distributed out to repair other bridges. So they did kind of a, a piecemeal repair. While they were doing it, two of the battalions, two of the three battalions were sent in to do a spearhead move to break through the German line, if you would, and across flat fields with no artillery, with no armor joining them, and without them even knowing it, with both of their flanks being frozen and unable to move, two battalions of men were sent on a suicide mission. Ross Calvert was lost, Dad's best friend was lost in that mission. Dad was able to to get out with some of his some of his guys, and they retreated back in the middle of the night to the farm, to the Maison Rouge farm. And there, a small cadre of men fought off a division of Germans through an entire night with no air support, minimal artillery support. And they were literally holding on by their fingernails, a battle that could have turned the war, the Battle of Maison Rouge. That one was particularly difficult to write about because the records on it are fairly limited. It was a a difficult battle, but it was one in which the Americans prevailed. And after that, Audie, who had now recovered, Audie Murphy and dad actually met again and shared some time together. Audie's company was going in to replace dad's company. And it was that battle that day where Audie Murphy on a tank won his Medal of Honor. So I felt it was an important battle to to kind of hallmark in the book. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. The history of the Popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the Popes of Rome and Church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform. Absolutely. Going 
ahead, there's a event you alluded to earlier. And just to describe it sounds strange, but we have to get into it. The mission that he sent on to find Lippas on our horses that Hitler has hidden away. It almost sounds like the plot of a World War II era swashbuckling novel where Hitler is up to something dastardly. Maybe he's trying to lock down the world supply of manganese for whoever knows what reason possible. But here, this is a real life event and he sent it on this mission. So please describe this. Yeah, it turns out that Hitler, who had the delusion of creating a perfect race, also wanted for that perfect race a perfect horse. And so early, even before the war, he began to have veterinarians and equine specialists make recommendations of what that horse may be. Uh, they narrowed it down to about five different types of horses, Lipizzans, Arabians, thoroughbreds, Cossack stallions, Berber, Berber stallions. And so they began to gather together as Germany began to, to sweep across Europe, conquering country after country or invading country after country. His horse specialists would gather up as many of, of that type of horses as they could. When they took over Austria, all of the Lipizzans at the Spanish Riding School, the famous Lipizzan dancing horses, were all brought into Czechoslovakia, and there were several horse farms. The largest was at Postau in South Central, South Central Czechoslovakia. And there's some, uh, some literally horrific breeding that took place where brother and sister horses and mother and son horses were, were bred in an attempt to, to rapidly, if you would, purify the bloodline of, of the horses, not realizing at the same time it could genetically destroy them. So there were rumors of that, but Czechoslovakia, because of the Yalta Agreement, would come under the Russians. And the Russians were working towards Czechoslovakia. Of course, the, the Americans were working towards Germany and at this point in Germany. And then an event happened in eastern Czechoslovakia where 12 Lipizzaners were being brought by trailer to Hostel from another horse farm. And the Russians uh, captured the truck, killed, I think, 11 of the 12 horses, butchered them, and made stew of them. And when that story reached back to American commanders, intelligence people, one of the veterinarians at Hostel, a colonel named Lessing, was so concerned about the breeding practices and now so concerned about the Russians coming in. And he was convinced that the horses there at Hostel were all in peril. And so he sent a message out to the Americans to please come in and save the, the horses. It, would, it was essentially a war crime because of the Alter Agreement. The Americans couldn't enter Czechoslovakia. And so Dad, both of his commanders, his regimental commander and his division commander, who were both equestrians, called him into a secret meeting and asked him if he would volunteer to be flown in to Czechoslovakia to meet with the resistance people, to be taken to the farm, to determine were the horses there or were they not, in particular the Lipizzans. And they were told he would have to go in with no identification, with no uniform. If he was discovered, his mission would have to be disavowed. Uh, he would be considered AWOL. He would likely be bounced out of the army. If he was killed, there would be no life insurance. There would be no benefits for his family. So it was a really a difficult decision, I would think, for most people. And Dad, at least according to the record, didn't even blink. He offered to go in. The pilot that flew him, it was just he and the pilot. And they never knew each other's names. 
even in the records of the commanders, I can't find any record of this event. And, and, and even books like the New York Times bestselling book, The Perfect Horse, that outline all of the details behind this rescue, don't mention Dad's mi- missions. They just come up in his stories. But he was flown in, met Colonel Lessing, and confirmed that the horses were there. That day when he rode around the farm, Colonel Lessing rode on a, on a Lipizzan and had brought with him a, a champion thoroughbred. And Dad rode that thoroughbred. That thoroughbred was condemned to death because it was discovered it was just a seven-eighths purebred. It wasn't pure thoroughbred. So any non-purebred horse was, was sent to the glue factory, if you would. It couldn't be kept on this particular farm. But Dad confirmed that the horses were there, flew out, transferred that information up the line. And then that ended, actually ended up in what was called Operation Cowboy, an operation approved by General Patton where the Americans illegally went into hostile and then walked the Lipizzan stallions out to save them, which is kind of an exciting story. That uh, thoroughbred horse was, well, after Dad came back, within three days, he was in a battle where he lost his leg just a month before the end of the war and was brought back to America where he recovered for a year. He decided he wanted to fight the Army policy that required that any officer with an amputation would be discharged once rehabilitated. The Army at that time didn't consider an amputated man fully human, worthy of of the Army. And Dad felt amputees had much, much to offer the Army. So do his commanders who offered him jobs as an amputee. So he decided to fight that all the way up to the Department of War. But in his rehabilitation, uh, was reunited with his regimental commander, his divisional commander, his best friend, Ross Calvert, who had actually become a POW. And, and they arranged to have that thoroughbred brought back from Europe. And that became Dad's horse for the, the rest of his career. I think the most dramatic, two most dramatic stories in the book, one was the actual court battle where Dad fought for amputees to stay in the service. And Scott, it's almost like the movie A Few Good Men where Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson had that battle on the witness stand, that tense court scene. I was able to find in the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, the actual transcript of that court scene. And it, I knew it was brutal from Dad's stories, but I didn't know how brutal it was, how, how the colonels that sat on that review board, the majority of them did not feel amputees were worthy of staying in the Army. And it's a a terrifically tense, tense scene. Dad lost that battle, but that horse helped save his life. And uh, the good news is now that amputees, as any of us who've watched the news know, not only can stay in the service, but uh, can be incredibly valuable to the service of our country. This goes along with a point you make in the book that it's what happens in the final stages of the war and his homecoming that make Phil's story so important and special. And you mentioned some of these things, but once he comes home, what are other parts of his story that you think are important to mention? Well, in his initial rehab, because he was an equestrian, part of his personal rehab was falling in love with a a young lady who was an equestrian and riding with her. And then as an amputee, learning to ride as with one leg. And so he had gotten bucked off with her once. He was so embarrassed by it that he had the physical therapist at the hospital. They, they took a barrel and basically developed kind of a bucking barrel, if you would. 
And that became part of the physical therapy regimen for people that had back and leg injuries. And then they actually began an equine therapy program at that hospital that they had helped kind of administer, if you would, after he left the hospital as he was battling the army to stay in. Like I mentioned earlier, he went to Fort Myer and was uh, where Ross Calvert, his best friend, was head of the, the color guard at Arlington Cemetery. And dad was part of the military, the ceremonial district in Washington. And so when his horse came to Arlington from Europe, all the caisson horses that, that pull the caisson for the, the casket, there's six of them. And the three left-hand horses, there's three pairs that pull the caisson. The three left-hand horses are ridden by an infantry soldier, and the right-hand horses are empty by tradition. So those are six of the horses. And then the seventh horse is ridden by the commander of the caisson. And then for a colonel or above who's being buried at Arlington, there's the empty saddle horse behind. So there's either seven or eight horses. But the horses that are ridden, the men or women now who are riding them cannot move. They're completely frozen. And yet they have to signal to the horses, how do you move? Do you go left? Do you right? Go forward? Do you go stop? Do you go backwards? And they do that with leg movements. It might be a twitch of the knee or a flick of the, the ankle or a combination of a squeeze of the thigh and the flip of the ankle. And all of those are signals to the horse for what to do. But they're all two-leg leads. And dad was a one-leg man. And so as far as I know, as far as I can find out, he was the first equestrian to train a horse to a one-leg lead. And that became just fascinating to see the exquisite training for the soldiers at the Tomb of the Unknowns, the training of the horses and the men of the caisson. And I wanted to explore that and reveal that in the book. It's just a marvelous thing that he did. But because of the ceremonial duties, not only the burials, but also any time uh, celebrities came into town anytime the White House had events. Ross and Dad and their men provided the dressed soldiers for that event. So Dad and Ross were often at the White House, and Dad got to to meet and know Harry Truman. At that time, Eisenhower was back and was the general of the army, so he was at Fort Myer in quarters one. Ross and a lot of people don't know, but Eisenhower was a maniac about playing bridge. In fact, there's rumors through some of the books I've read of Eisenhower that his command staff was always chosen not only on their military and leadership experience, but their ability to play bridge. And Ross and Dad were so good at bridge that they were often invited by Eisenhower to come uh, sit at weekly bridge games. And Mamie would serve all the the drinks and uh, empty the ashtrays. And apparently Eisenhower was a maniac when he played bridge. In fact, Mamie told Dad uh, Dad asked her why, because she played bridge. She was in a bridge club. He asked Mamie one night at when they were playing bridge with Eisenhower, did she play with him? And she said, no, he got too angry <laughs> when, when he played. But it was that background of Eisenhower and Truman working in the background, trying to get amputees uh, into the army that dad had hoped that he might win that battle. But, but when he didn't, uh, President Truman was able to get him a position at the University of Virginia where dad and, uh, and his horse retired. And then dad began uh, his next career as a college professor, a cartographer, a map maker, and then eventually a, a loyal husband and a wonderful father. 
Well, this is a very important story that you shared, not just about Phil's World War II experiences, but also how he took those experiences and made a positive change afterwards. There's a lot more to the story that we couldn't get to, but for listeners who want to read more, the name of your book is At First Light, a true World War II story of a hero, his bravery, and an amazing horse. Well, thank you for joining us. Scott, it's been a real treat. And my hope and prayer is that it'll help all of us who walk in awful big footsteps Remember the sacrifice and suffering of these amazing men and women, our forebears. All right, that is it for today. If you would like to see show notes for this episode, along with all my others, go to ParthenonPodcast.com. That's the name of the podcast network that I'm a part of, along with James Early's Key Battles of American History, Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy, and other great history shows as well. If you'd like to support History Unplugged, the two easiest ways to do so are to subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. The second way is to join our membership program. And if you do so, you'll get completely ad-free episodes of the entire back catalog, which is 600 episodes and growing. Just go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Music.